In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Welcome once again to Strange Planet. Great to have you with me. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the legend of the lost continent of Atlantis, this supposedly mythical island nation, the inhabitants of which supposedly possessed incredible advanced technology. It's mentioned in Plato's dialogues and has been dismissed by many skeptics as merely an allegory on the, the hubris of nations. But what if Atlantis was real? What if there were a place on Earth that matched Plato's description of Atlantis to a scientifically proven 99.32% accuracy? David Edward knows where Atlantis is and has proven it in his book, Atlantis Solved, the final definitive proof. He's published over 40 books about evenly split between historical fiction and nonfiction, including the best-selling thriller Panama Red, the first book in a series that has sold over 100,000 copies. Previously, David wrote Coral Castle, a short history of, Maya, a short history of, and DMT, a short history of. He served as a special agent in the U.S. Army in the 1980s and 90s and is a veteran of multiple overseas combat tours. He was the special agent in charge of the 1990 Panama Canal counterterrorism threat assessment report to the U.S. Congress. He's a graduate of the United States Army Intelligence School where he studied advanced human intelligence and battlefield counterintelligence, also completing training at the Jungle Operations Training Center in Panama, Central America. He holds four, count them, four graduate degrees, including a doctorate in engineering, and he hosts a weekly podcast on the writing industry, 
that often serves as many as 30,000 views per episode, and he's got a new project he'll tell us about. Uh, I mean, where does he find the time? Well, let's find out. David, Edward, welcome. How are you? I'm doing good, sir. Uh, you know, as you're reading that, I'm just listening. I'm thinking, wow, I'm an old guy. <laughs> Basically, you could have shortened it, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, I could spend the, the, whole, uh, the whole episode just um, your bona fides are uh, just incredible. Uh, well, you know, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I, 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 hate, I hate to do it. I never know whether people want to know that stuff or not. But when you're talking about Atlantis, I've found it helps to at least have people understand where you're coming from. And, and I have a pretty good background to be looking for it. So I appreciate you reading that whole thing. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. Um, before we get started, tell us about the, the history of project that you're working about right now. Yeah, well, thank you. So, yeah, the Atlanta book has done pretty good. It, it was number one. I was on Coast to Coast AM in uh, August, and it was number one for like a month, which blew me away. I mean, you know, I, I, the reception of it has been very good. Um, so what, I, what I'm doing is I have a new YouTube channel called A History Of, and basically we're very methodically going through all of the details because people, they like to read the books, but lots of people like to really dig into the details because they've heard so many things on Atlantis. They want to understand not just what someone says it is, but why they're saying that and what, what, what the supporting evidence to back that up is. So that's what we're doing on the A History Of channel. And it's, been, it's only been out for a month and it's doing pretty good. I've got one video that's got, I think, 20 or 30,000 views, and I just hit... Um, 1200 subscribers today so you know it's a good it's a good start it's very hard to grow these channels so if anyone's interested please do subscribe yeah you know so much of what um i talk about on this podcast and it gets discussed on coast to coast seem like these inscrutable riddles and and almost like uh, a swamp that you know you get absorbed by it but there's never any resolution whether we're talking about bigfoot or ufos uh and I would have put, I think many people would have put Atlantis in that same category. And yet, here it is, perhaps, probably, resolution, complete, like case closed, right? Are you that confident about it? I am. Um, I was very naive when I wrote that title, I'll, I'll be honest, because um, I wasn't as in the industry as I am now. So Atlantis is a funny thing. I, I love the space. It's a fantastic topic, and it's fun. And People are as passionate about the locations they think Atlantis are as they are about current politics, maybe more so. Um, but Atlantis is a safe topic, right? We used to argue politics a lot, right? They used to be a fun. I used to love to argue politics. I had many friends that believed different things. But you, today is hard to do that. But now I can go in and we can argue Atlantis. Yeah. Uh, what I didn't, what I didn't realize with Atlantis, sorry, was um, many people have almost religious like beliefs about it. So I came in with this analytical approach and, and you know, 75% of the people that, that hear it or I talk about it, love it. But there's, there's, there's a group that doesn't see Atlantis that way and they, they get frustrated by it. So it's just fascinating to be in that space and get to talk to all those different people. Right. Yeah. You, you thought you were wading into, uh, you know, Hey, Atlantis, nobody gets hurt. Let's talk about it. <laughs> nobody. Well, and I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, you know, cause you know, I, and you read my bio. I, I also, I was president of a university for a while. I was, I was the chief editor of an academic paper. So I'm, I have a foot on the academic side. I'm not employed in academics anymore. I've been the Dean of a, a school I've taught for years. And I'm also a kook. I'm, I'm a nerd. Um, you know, I grew up on this stuff. So, and I've got the military background that you went over. I mean, I'm really well-rounded to look for this. Um, and what I've learned, the, the book's been out about eight months, seven months, like that. What I've learned to do is to be able to talk about it with folks without getting, feeling like they're attacking me. Because what they're really doing is they're projecting their beliefs about, and, and they've associated it with themselves. So I've learned how to talk about it because 
you know, we, we all today, if someone says something we don't like, we think we have the absolute right to get mad and throw our hands up and start screaming. You know, and, but so I've learned how not to do that, which has been a huge personal growth for me. It's, you know, it's, it's hard. That's everything's hard, but that that's exceptionally hard, but I'm so proud of myself for having learned to do that. So that, so for me, that's one thing that this space has, has brought. So let's, um, I, I know you, whenever you, the subject comes up, you, you talk about Jim Corsetti, a, a fellow Always. vet, uh, mm -hmm. because it was his um, work, I guess, in, in, in 2018, sort mm -hmm. of really focusing attention on the, the location that we now believe Atlantis is situated in. Just to tell us a little bit, for those not familiar with Corsetti's work, what, what he was on about. Yeah, and there's two guys. There, there's um, a Jimmy Corsetti who has a channel called Bright Insight. And I mentioned jokingly that I, I'm an old guy. Um, old guys, as you may know, I don't know, you might get to this. We sometimes have a hard time sleeping. Um, so I was having one of those nights, and I got up, and I got on YouTube, and YouTube handed me his video. And I'm coming to this party very late because his in 2018, this whole thing blew up. He's been on Joe Rogan. And he kind of, it, I, I believe he found it. Where he is struggling, in my opinion, is proving it because he doesn't have the weight of an academic education behind him. I mean, he's got an MBA in marketing. He's not uneducated, but it's not in the Atlantis space. Um, so there's him. And there's another guy, David Stig Hansen, who has a, a channel of his own name on YouTube. And David actually has become very friendly with me. And he goes, he went there. He went to the Rishat structure in January of 2022. And he was there the entire month of October. Um, and he has all the, he, and he and I, we probably agree, like agree, like 90%, but he was, I, there was a number of samples I want to collect pictures. I wanted things I want to look at and he was kind enough to do it. So he's kind of my on ground, um, piece. Yeah. Both those guys are on YouTube. Uh, uh Jimmy Quisse is very popular. His, his videos have had millions and millions of views. Um, and I'm basically adding on to his work, but I always mention it. I even called him. I've talked to him. I don't want people to think I'm trying to hijack this. I, I've had a few people say, well, you're ripping the guy. I'm not ripping him off. I'm trying to help him. I, I think he's right and he can't go it alone. So that's why I'm jumping in. Right. And so you took Corsetti, uh, his work, and you applied some methodology that was lacking. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. And so I, I mean, I've done, I'm like, I mentioned I was the publisher of um, an academic journal, I think 20, the 2008, 2009 edition. So a little while ago, but I know that process. I know the peer review process. I've written my own articles. Um, you know, by the time you get all these silly degrees, you've been through this thesis and dissertation process enough times. You know, I, I know the process. I know how to do that. I know how to frame it. And I also have kind of a ruthless analytical mind. So I can really look past a lot of noise, which you have to do in the Atlanta space. One of the things you typically do if you're going to do academic research in any field is you formulate your question and then you see what the current opinion of the field is. So you do you, you, you research what, what's known about it, what, what are the current views and all of that. Um, and I started to do that with Atlantis, but it's next to impossible because everyone has said everything. Atlantis has been beaten to death and we've all heard absolutely everything about it. Um, so what I had to end up doing was I, I did all the work again. So I went back, I treated Plato as a primary source. I've, I talked to the Dean of Philosophy at Yale University to make sure to get her opinion on that. And their opinion is, eh, you know, academically, you, you could, you know, there's clearly historical pieces in there, but they view him much more as philosophy. Uh, but, but that aside, what I do is I say, and, and I'm coming at this, I'm an engineer and I'm a, what I call a physical historian. So I'm interested in not, not, I mean, the fact that Poseidon dated a mountain girl, I mean, all that, that's great. That's great. That's interesting. 
but I can't, I can't measure that. I can't go look. I can't find that. So what I did is I decomposed the dialogues, Critias and Timius, um, and I break them down into, and I, sh and I do all the work in the book. I mean, you can see it. I show you the dialogues and I start decomposing them. And what I end up with is a list of requirements. And then I organize them in a, in a meaningful way. And now I basically say, the Atlantis turns out, after you read it, it's three things. It was a city, it was a continent, and it was a kingdom. So I broke the requirements down into each of those three buckets. And then I looked everywhere. I looked I looked at like 15 different places. I pretty much, I actually did a survey on Reddit. I said, where does everyone think Atlantis is? And everywhere they said they thought it was, I, I looked and I did all the analysis. And the one I landed on as the capital was the Rishat structure which is this thing in West Africa. But I struggle in these conversations because Richard, you, everyone you talk to, they say, where is Atlantis? Like, like it's one thing. But when you really dig into the dialogues, Plato tells us it, it was in 10 places. And he gives us the names of the kings of all of the, or the princes of all those places. Um, for example, the, the king of Atlantis, who was um, at the capital, was named Atlas. So there we phonetically, we look for things that involve the word Atlas. But there's nine other names. Um, so what I did is I started looking for him. So, so for example, the eldest of the fifth set of twins is named Azores. There you well, go. that's interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yes. there's a lot of people that think the Azores are, are Atlantis, and then and and I have to I always have to say, well, wait, wait, wait. It, it it is Atlantis, and and the plural of Atlantis is Atlantis. So vo the vocabulary is not going to help us. But it wasn't it wasn't the cap. It can't be the capital. The work you got to do to make the Azores the capital starts to go into fiction. I mean, the, the idea that there's the, the earth crust, not not earth crust, what they call a, a glacial rebound created. It doesn't work. You can't meet the land masses in the dialogue. But when you start to look at where it is positioned from a seafaring and trade standpoint. It was probably the richest of all the provinces, because if you look at trade routes, which is one thing I analyze is 15th, 16th and 17th century trade routes under the theory of as people were figuring out how to do it, then maybe that's going to clue us into how they would have done it before. And all the, the trade routes basically work. If you're heading west, you, you tend to go down the coast of Africa and then across. That's how the currents take you. And then you end up at the top, like in Colombia ish. Mm -hmm. When you're heading east, when you're heading back, they take you north and they actually take you through the Azores. So I'm doing all this analysis on the channel, but the Azores, I think everything, everything that people have found is right. It's just, but it just wasn't the capital because none of the geography, we can't find, we can't find any of it. Um, and the rich shot matches it. I'm going to assume there were no, no princes named Bimini as in Bimini road. So that one's off the dock. It is. <laughs> well, it's not, it's actually, it's not off the dock. It's not off the dock. Um, uh, I, I'm going to be vague on that. I don't touch on that in the book and I'm going through these in the videos, but, but Bimini and what they call Asland, A-Z-T-L-A-N, um, are both things that we're going to explore on that channel. Now, one of the criteria we have, because we're told in the dialogues that Atlanta, the Atlanteans um, conquered uh, the parts of the Mediterranean from Libya up to Egypt uh, and parts of Europe and the terrain and Terrania, which is basically Italy and that the, there's a Terranian sea in there. Well, to conquer something socio-politically we're still dealing with people so there has to be some reason to do it Proximity. and you have to be yeah. and you have, to, you have to be close enough to do it and the technology one of one of my assumptions is that the things we know about our past are have to hold generally we can't just blow the whole thing up um, now anytime um i deviate from that what i do is i create a percentage and i say like for example we looked at crete and there's a and Crete lines up. It, it doesn't. It's not outside the pillars of Heracles or where we think they were. So it's too close. But could it have been one of these provinces? 
Maybe there, there's some linguistics that, that line up perfectly, but academically, we can get all the way back to 7,000 BCE. It's, it's clean academic science that in seven, Crete has been occupied for 130,000 years, but in 7,000 BCE, there was an agrarian transformation, which is what we look for when we look for Atlanteans, because Plato tells us that they were very good at agriculture and they were very good at organizing themselves. Um, they weren't very good at war because they lost. <laughs> they lost the Greeks, to, right? Well, the, they lost it. Well, whatever the Greeks were, exactly. what the proto-Greeks, you get in trouble if you use the wrong word. Right. Uh, so whoever was in Greece, you know, 9600 BCE, proto-Greeks, whatever, um, were able to beat them back, whatever, whatever that means. So, so no nuclear Greeks. subs, no, uh, yeah. no uh, free energy crystal devices. No, <laughs> I'm not saying no. I, I'm not even saying I don't know. I don't care if they, that, that's, that's a callous way of saying it. Um, but uh, what I'm I'm an engineer, so stuff I can see, and a physical historian, stuff I can see. So I've got Plato's dialogue, which I've decided to treat as historically accurate. That's an assumption, but it's, it's okay. We've identified that it as an assumption. Um, and then we have to assume this fits into generally what we know about ourselves. Um, so I always say I'm, I'm like the Grinch who's stealing Christmas because, you know, you got the big Christmas present. You open it, you know, you've been dreaming about it for weeks. You open it, it's tube socks and underwear, you know, but which, which you need. It, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but that's what I think Atlantis was. I, I think it was advanced agriculturally. Matter of fact, I think it was incredibly advanced agriculturally. And we found, I found all kinds of evidence that we're in the process of laying out around this Rishat structure that no one even talks about because no one's looked for it. And I know, well, based on the work that David Stig Hansen has done, we know where to dig too. We know where to dig in West Africa. No one's dug there yet. Um, but it's not at the Rishat structure because there's there's some topology that you can look at. Okay, so let's get back to uh, to Plato, and uh, where where Atlantis is mentioned in the two dialogues, uh, Critias and Timius. Um, uh, who was Critias? <laughs> that's it. Now that's just. Do you, do, have you heard me talk about this? Is that a setup question? Is it, is it a setup question? I don't. Have you heard me talk about this? Uh, no. Well, then that's the greatest question I've ever been asked. I, I am the I am the critias expert uh, okay. when it comes to to critias. So basically, there's three critias. So we have Solon, who uh, the dialogues say went to Egypt and took notes. And Solon says he wrote the stuff down at the Temple of Neith at Sais. That whole place we can get into. I don't want to go off of your question, but th there's a whole history there I can talk to and lay out. Critias is a huge problem. We have because we have these two dialogues. One's called Critias. One calls uh, I call it Timius. I believe. Did you say? Tim, I believe the correct pronunciation is Timaeus. But I, yes. I struggle. I I get tongue tied, so I say I say Timius because they're both like hard eyes. But anyway, the Critias one, and everyone has always assumed and and forced the distinction that they're the same person in both dialogues. But but Plato often brings back a, a slightly different cadre of speakers in a in a subsequent dialogue to, to allow the conversation to go in different places. I've done all the research. I've laid this out. But to get to your answer, um, in the Critias dialogue, we're dealing with Critias the grandfather. He's the middle Critias. So we had Solon, who had a brother named Dropides, who had a son named Critias, who became Critias the Elder, who isn't part of this story. Then he had a son. And then that son named his son Critias, who became Critias the grandfather, because he had a son who had a son who they named Critias, who became Critias the tyrant. He was one of the 30 tyrants in Athens, like 402 BC. Um, in the Critias dialogue, it's Critias, the grandfather who's talking. And he even says very specifically that he still possesses the writings of Solon from when he went to Egypt and he has studied them and that's what he's recounting. So Solon the, was not a contemporary of, of Plato. Solon went to Egypt 
where he learned about their, their history, including what they knew about Atlantis, and he took that back to Greece. Solon, Solon, arguably, Solon was around 600 BCE. Arguably, he's the father of democracy. He's the guy that was sitting around in his in his robe or whatever they did in 600 BCE and said, you know, there might be a better way to do this. So he kind of went on a tour of the known world and he was gathering information. He was trying to come up with how do you have a democracy? Because it had never been done before. So he's a very important and well-known historical figures. All those names I mentioned are, are, are well-known historical figures. Um, and uh, I don't remember the question you asked me. Well, it, it was about who no, you answered it. Who was, uh, okay. well, I, I asked whether Solon was, uh, was a contemporary of, of oh, Plato, but he yeah. came before, obviously. So Critias is a descendant of Solon. He has Solon's, all the paperwork. He's the paperwork. Critias, the grandfather, has the paperwork. And then, and I, and, I, and I lay this out, and then in 420 BC, Critias, the grandfather, tells the story to the Critias that would become Critias, the tyrant. And this is important because this is mentioned in the Timaeus dialogue. Um, Critias, the grandfather, was 90 in 420 BCE, and Critias, the tyrant, was 10 which is exactly what the dialogue says. So we know exactly when the Timaeus dialogue date was, 420 BCE, which lines up perfectly. Plato, that, that that's when Socrates was, you know, talking about horse flies and irritating everyone and really into it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so we can line these dates up. And, and I do want to go back. So, and we can go farther. This temple of Neith at Saïs that Solon went to, it's an incredibly important temple. Matter of fact, it's, I, I can't believe it's so important. It was, well, first off, when he went there, Saïs was the capital of Egypt. It's in the Western Delta. Uh, the temple of Neith was founded before 3000 BCE, which is, so it's pre-dynastic. It's before the first Egyptian dynasty. Now, the Egyptian dynasties that we use, it's, it's just a contrivance. It's just basically around 2900 BCE, they started writing stuff down. And so we say, okay, well, when, when, when writing shows up, which is a technology as an engineer, that's when we're going to start saying they're dynasties. So th there was a lot going on before that, but to us, that, that's how we've contrived it. But Neith, she, she is the prime creator goddess. She, she is in the Egyptian pantheon. She's the mother of all of the gods. She's the mother of Ra. She's the mother of the entire pantheon. And the Neith cult actually forms in 6,000 BCE on the West Nile Delta. We can trace it all the way back to that. And it's really hard to see that far back. We also have, we have like on Malta and, and Sicily and those areas, we have this weird mother goddess cult and we don't know what it is. We have these figurines of this very heavy woman figure um, and they don't know what it is. But if you look at a map, Malta's not that far from Egypt and we know we're, we're talking west of Egypt and we know we have this Neith cult. So I'm not saying it's related. I don't have any evidence of that. I'm just saying when you start to look at it, currently academics have a philosophy that um societies evolve in isolation around this time in ancient history that that they when they look at something that's how they look at it they assume that the aztecs were isolated from the egyptians who were isolated from whatever was going on in spain or south africa you know whatever and and when if you turn that around you say let's assume there was associations which is just an assumption the whole picture changes and and that's really what i wish i could figure out a way to get us to do because so much of the information is already put together it's just fragmented and, and off to the side and we pretend like it doesn't exist we're going to take a time out uh, david when we come back we'll we'll talk about what plato actually wrote about atlantis we'll get into all of the uh, uh, the particulars david edward is with us and uh, the author of atlantis solved the final Definitive proof. Stay with us.
truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. All right, David Edward is with us. He knows where Atlantis is. He's proven it in his book, Atlantis Solved, the Final Definitive Proof. So, Plato, in these two dialogues, Critias and Timaeus, Timaeus. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to screw you up on how you pronounce them, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So, uh, just kind of run through the laundry list. It's an important laundry list, but the of, of what Plato had to say or had to write about Atlantis. Yeah, and there's a lot. You know, I, I don't want to just do a, like a, a brain dump, but there's two lines. That, so I, I basically, I've created in these, these these videos on my channel what I call the Atlantis Detector. <laughs> and it's it's a silly name. It's supposed to be a silly name. But there's basically, there there is a, uh, and, and remember, we have, we have the city, we have the continent, we have the kingdom. But this, the, the, the capital city has to sit on a landmass that's going to meet the requirement for the continent. And there's a line, I'll read it here, um, that is in there that I never have heard. I've, I've watched every show that's ever been made, as far as I know, since 1972 about Atlantis. I've never heard this, but here's the line. It says, the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain, itself surrounded by mountains, which descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even and of an oblong shape extending in the one direction, 3000 stadia. And I looked at that. I, I came across that and I just struggled. And I, I stared at it forever because I couldn't, it's hard to know what it means. But then I started looking like, well, every time I watch a documentary, they always go to Crete and then they go to Santorini and then maybe they go to Malta or they end up in Spain or they just go in the Greek islands, you know, you know, that kind of thing. But what I think this says is that there's a 3000 stadia, gentle sloping plane to the sea from the city so we have a lot to unpack so what's a stadia mm. that'd be a good thing to start with right? right so it turns out a stadia is um and there's you can pick depending on how you want to ground the dialogues there's a couple different measurements you can pick the one that i think makes the most sense is the unit of measure that was used during plato's lifetime because we're told that the names and measurements are translated into greek so another thing that people don't really realize is that Plato and Alexander the Great were alive at the same time for like 12 years. I mean, Alexander was a kid and Plato was an old guy. But what became what they call the Alexandrian measure of a stadia is what, what the measurement was during Plato's time. It's basically 606.9 feet. So I just say 607 feet because none of this is that exact. So when you multiply uh, 607 feet by 3,000, uh, you get like 1.8 million something and you divide it by 5,280, which is a mile and you get 345 miles. So almost by accident, I, I had done that. And then I went to Google Earth and I measured how far inland the Rishat structure was from the Atlantic Ocean. It was 345 miles. And I, and it, and, and I literally, I stared, I must have stared at the screen for like an hour because you, you know, you're just like, what? So I'm like, okay. I kind of didn't think it was going to be it. And, but then you, you, you pull back, you look at the satellite imagery, um, and you can actually see where there was a waterway. And it starts to all make sense. And that, that gentle slope, it, 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 that slope comes out like 0.07% or something, which is like the perfect slope for waterways, like the Nile or the Mississippi or any of those other ones. You could easily sail up and down it and all of those things. Um, and, and a waterway can be blocked by a shawl of mud, which is another confusing statement that Plato tells us that we've never been able to figure out. He says, after the cataclysm, the way to Atlantis was blocked by a shawl of mud. Well, the open sea is not going to be blocked by a shawl of mud. Even if there's a big pile of mud, you sail around it in the open sea. So you have to have some waterway that's constrained to some degree. Well, 
the only place we have that in the 15 places that people, well, other than Antarctica, we have no idea what's under the ice, but it's too far away. Um, the only place we have that is, is the Rishat structure. Uh, he t Plato tells us that they dug a canal 100 feet deep, 300 feet wide, and 50 stadia in length from the inner um, uh, island that had the palace uh, to the uh, outer ring. And by the palace, he says there was a harbor. Okay. Well, 50 stadium, when you do that math, it comes out to like five and three quarter miles. Well, how far is the center island from the outer ring on the Rishat structure? Five and three quarter miles. Uh, he says that they built bridges over those channels and on the outer ring, the the the, the piece they cut into the um, bedrock was eight was three stadia, which is 1,800 feet. Well, there's a three stadia cut out at the southern end of the Rishat structure. Uh, he says that uh, the, the north uh, the north of the city was sheltered and the south was open. Well, the north of the Rishat structure has mountains and the south is open. And it just goes on and on and on like that. People think it's a collapsed volcanic dome. Well, he tells us there was hot and cold springs on the center island. Well, you have to have a volcano. That's how you get hot and cold water. Um, he tells us that they had tremendous agriculture prowess and that they could grow like all the plants of the earth or something like that. And then he goes on and he says that there were 60,000 10 by 10 stadia farms. 60,000, which is I mean, that's that's a lot of farms. Um, well, uh, so 10 by 10. So a stadia, you do the math and that's like a little bit like 1.1 miles. So it's like 10, 60,000, uh, 1.1 miles squares have to go somewhere. Well, you start to look at Mauritania and the, and the, and the um, plain uh, of West Africa where this thing sits. It's one of the only land masses on the planet that's flat enough to have that. Um, plus, and I've gotten very lucky, and this hasn't been released. I mentioned it, but I haven't shown the evidence to anyone yet. But I had a, what do they call them? They call them a chemical geologist look at, I found what looked to me like very regimented um, canal earthworks on a massive scale that go under the sand. Um, but there's all this weird black rock caked on the top and it's all in grid patterns. And it's, I mean, and we're talking like over, over dozens and dozens and dozens of miles. So I had a, a geologist look at it and they referred me to a chemical geologist. They told me that what those are probably are, they're probably called, what they're called salt evaporites. Um, well, how do you, what's a salt evaporite? So what a salt evaporite is, is if all salt is sodium chloride and it all comes from the sea. So if, if a wave, a tsunami wave came in, sat there for a long time, and then eventually evaporated, and then it got you know, turned into a desert, it cooked for, for hundreds of years. And we see that, but the cool thing is they're hard as rock, but they've preserved all of the earthworks underneath the sand. And I know where this is. I, I haven't told anyone. David Stickhans is the only other guy that knows where this is. And we're going we're gonna to release it. But, you know, I mean, it's like I'm not just confident. It's, it's, if this wasn't it, then Plato it was Edgar Cayce, and he, <laughs> he was able to look into the future. I, it's like it's impossible to have this many coincidences for this location. So Mauritania is in northwest Africa. It's in the Sahara Desert, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much. Um, we should um, – can you give us a time frame? What – when did Plato say Atlantis was uh, destroyed? Yeah. The classic um, uh, way to derive this date, which looks right to me because I did it all myself, is basically he says it happened in 600 BCE, so Plato tells us. And then in the story, the Egyptian priest tells Solon it, was, it happened 9,000 years before they were talking. So you add 600 to 9,000, you get 9,600, which is another one of these numbers, this magical. For, I mean, for Plato... In, in 400 BCE to have picked that date out of the air 
because, I mean, you know, we all know this game. We, it, you know, we, we've all learned because we've all watched Graham Hancock and all that. Younger Dryas. We, mm -hmm. we know to say Younger Dryas, Younger Dryas. One of the things I had to do is like, well, what, what's a Dryas? <laughs> I mean, I'm really trying to pull this thing apart. So I look, and it turns out what a Dryas is, is a flowering plant that does really well in colder weather at higher elevations. And there's been three Dryas events. All the, the, the Younger Dryas is the most recent one. It ended in 9600 BCE. Then there was the Older Dryas and the Oldest Dryas. Um, now, no one came to me for these names, very creative names, uh, but and, and they all range from like 9600 BC and then they go back about 10,000 years or so. And what these are, these are times where the temperature on the earth got really cold. So there are lots of these flowering plants. Then at the end of the younger Dryas, um, we, we know, accepted science, as they say, that um, uh, the temperature of the earth increased 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit some really quickly. Maybe it was a year. Maybe it was six months, maybe it was two days, but it was really quickly. It got hot. Um, and then, of course, uh, and people are like, well, even if the water is raising an inch you know, a week, that's no one's going to be surprised by that. It's like, whoa, 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 think about it. So you have all this ice on the ice caps. All that weight is shifting around. And we know the North Atlantic Ridge is the thinnest land mass, you know, it's the thinnest crust anywhere. So it doesn't have to shift much and you get a tsunami. And when you look at the aerial photography, you can still see it. You can still see it today. You can see the runoff of the water of West Africa. If you, if you, anyone can do it, go to Google earth, just zoom out far enough and kind of look from the East to the West over West Africa and you'll see it. Um, so it, it all makes sense. And, and nothing I've said, by the way, is contentious at all. If we were to find a mainstream academic, they would agree with the data points that they might not agree with my conclusions, but no one's going to argue that the Sahara was green in 9,600 BC. We all, we all know that it was. Right. Um, the other, um, points, uh, geographically related to Libya, Egypt, and Europe, well, it certainly uh, ticks that box. Um, what else do we need to see here? Um, a center island surrounded by two concentric circles of land and water. So talk to me yeah, about which, how Atlantis this, is configured. Yeah, this Rishat thing is the only thing in the world that looks like that. Um, it is it's perfect. It it looks it, it looks like Atlantis when you when you hear those words. There's a center island, um, and then there's uh, two rings of land outside of it. It sits in a topology that when it rained a lot in 9600 BCE would have been a lake, um, and it's a big lake. I mean, it, it's like ten miles from the edge to to this island in the middle. And the island, if it's if you know if the radius is five and three quarter miles, that means it's like twelve miles across. Or I want to have that math works. Eleven miles across. No, yeah, 12, I'm okay. 11 and a half miles across. Um, so we have that. Here's what Plato says, by the way, about the what, what after one of these deluges, what happens? He says, the earth has fallen away all around and sunk out of sight. The consequence is that in comparison of what was then, there are remaining only the bones of the wasted body, as they may be called, as in the case of small islands, all the richer and softer parts of the soil having fallen away and the mere skeleton of the land being left. And if that's not a description of what we see when we look at the Rishat, and anyone can go look this up, go go to Google, type in R-I-C-H-A-T, hit on images, you have a wall of them, and you can see it. And the first, as soon as I've shown this, every time they see it, like, oh yeah, that looks like that looks like it. Um, so yeah, so you know, we've we've got that. There's there's a few more measurements that um, we have. Oh, 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 oh. So Richard, have you ever heard of the Piri Reese map? I'm sure you have. Yes, yes. From Graham, yeah. you mentioned Graham Hancock. Uh, from Graham Hancock. 
I still have my first edition Fingerprints of the Gods 1995 book. I remember vividly. I bought it in an airport. Um, I read it on the plane, and my life was changed. I loved I loved the guy, especially his early work. I, I have not – I don't know what he's been doing the past 10 years. I listen to him, but, I mean, I you know. But um, uh, the Peary Reese map, the big consternation about it, and what Graham Hancock says about it is that the left-hand side and the bottom seem to show more – a detail about the land masses than could have been known. It was it was made in like 1512. So this is or 1514. So it's like 20 or 22 years after Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. But it was he, uh, he, he was it was com, a, a composite of, of of really ancient maps, right? That is that is the belief which seems to hold. Yeah. And it all of this is arguable and no one can win the argument. So if you look at the bottom and you see the continental shelf of Antarctica, which it seems to show perfectly, then you see that. If you look at the bottom and you decide that these that, that Piri Reese was an idiot and uh, he commissioned a map, he didn't have a big enough piece of paper, so they had to bend the bottom of South America over, um, then that's what you see. Um, one of my going into some one of my assumptions is I, I, we can't assume these folks are idiots. So the idea that it was drawn wrong because there wasn't enough paper. Just I can't accept that. I can't accept that. Doesn't doesn't mean I'm I carte blanche accept the other side. Anyway, no, on the left, on the right hand side of the map, on the east side is is the coast of Africa that we're interested in, and it, we've all been looking at this. I I, look, I stared at this for fifty years and it never occurred to me. But if you bring up the map right now and you look at Africa, there's a big elephant, which Plato mentions elephants. There's some green mountains. He mentions green mountains, and then you look, and there's like there's like some hills blocking a river. And then a little farther in, there's this kooky little city surrounded by a ring of water up a river. And it is exactly where the Rishat structure is. And Piri Reese, he's getting on a boat. He's an adventurer. He's not going to accept a map into the middle of the Sahara Desert and saying there's a river there when, when it's clearly nothing but a 140 degree desert. So it th doesn't mean that that's how the land was when he was there, but it means the map it was taken from was a trusted map. Um and it's sitting right there. And I don't know what else we could look at. No one's drawing a city in a ring of water in the middle of Africa, exactly where the Rishat structure is, which is exactly where Plato tells it is, tells us it is, unless someone thought it was there and saw it and drew, drew, drew the map. So the and the evidence just keeps piling up when you look at it, you know, with 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 fresh eyes. All right, we'll take another time out and come back and uh, discuss Atlantis with David Edwards. Stay with us. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we are back with David Edward. His book, Atlantis Solved, The Final Definitive Proof. Now, I mean, this, this evidence is overwhelming. Um, however, there is one that's kind of confusing, and that is um, Plato talks about or writes about the the size of Atlantis. I think he said it's like the size of Libya plus Asia. He said, "Yeah, he says um, it's, a, it's it's bigger than Libya and Asia combined." Yeah, well, Asia is pretty. When big. Plato, <laughs> it's very, very big. Um, now, when Plato says Asia, he's talking mostly about what we would call Asia Minor or Turkey, because mm. that's where the Persians were. And and I and to prove that, I always point out. I mentioned Alexander the Great and Plato lived at the same time. Uh, 20 years after Plato's death, Alexander the Great is conquering the known world. He gets to India and he starts weeping because he thinks he's at the end of the continent. But India's only halfway. 
So I, I have, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I can back up what I say. So when you take uh, Asia Minor and Libya, and Libya wasn't like we see it today. It was pretty much the entire northern coast of Africa from Egypt to what we would call the Atlas Mountains of Morocco today, mm. but didn't go in quite as deep. So the because they didn't know it was just too far. Um, so but the landmass is about the same. So if, if you go look at the square miles of Asia Minor and Libya and you add them together, you get, you get about a million square miles. So that means that the continent that the capital city sits on has to be able to account for at least a million square miles of land. Another important thing, this word continent that, that we've gotten hung up on that. I actually looked this up. I went to Encyclopedia Britannica and a few other places. There's no formal definition of a continent. It's a contrivance. Um, it just basically means a big piece of land that we can see as its own region. That's like the formal definition. Uh, so when you take all that into account and then you look at West Africa, um, and you look at Mauritania and up to over into Mali, which is this whole plain I'm talking about, up to Morocco, it's 2 million square mile. So it's absolutely bigger than what Plato would have considered Libya and Asia combined. And there's other things. He, he tells us that the Atlanteans were really good working with fusile metals. Well, what, what's a fusile metal? I watched Forged in Fire. I don't know if I know what, you know, I had to look it up. And it, it turns out a fusile metal is like bronze. It's a metal that, that you can melt and work with relatively easily you know not not quite not like iron or some of the harder this is before metals. this is before the bronze age we're talking about right well, this is way before the bronze yeah. this is six thousand years before yeah. the, 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 we are we are hip deep in the neolithic um now i was let me let me, let me mention the, so more, one of mauritania's biggest exports still today is is precious metals um but you, you know let's talk about the neolithic in this time period 9600 i mentioned the date was magical in addition to those things i said about what's going on in the climate culturally we've got gobegle tepe which dates to the same day it's same day plato talks about i mean not not like the same year the same day and so we we can look at that and we can say okay that that's a level um of technology you know that we can start to apply uh to the atlanteans Oh, I'm sorry, but there's, there, I, I'm sorry, there, but there's other nice. We're also hip deep in the, what they call the pre-pottery Neolithic. Um, so this is uh, a lot of technology with rocks, but it's all rocks. They, they haven't figured out they can get dirt wet and cook it yet. Um, and we're also in the middle of what they call the agricultural revolution. So this is, you know, we, we start to see agriculture show up. Well, the Atlanteans are really good at agriculture. And when you start to look at the isolation and size and resources they had, of course they are. Because they can start to, you know, they, you know, that's what what and we and we know people were at this location in 9600 BC. They were they were what we would call cavemen. That's that's okay. But if I'm a caveman, I see this beautiful lake or beautiful island, I, and I go over to it. Now no one can mess with me. The the saber-toothed tigers aren't hunting me anymore. I can grow stuff. You know what I mean? It's a it's a good place to live. Right, right. Uh, what's yeah. happening in Saharan Africa 9600 years ago? What does it look like? It looks like um. So you're in you're in Canada. So for me, I always describe it as looking like Georgia in the U.S. So it's kind of the the our not it's not quite our farm belt. It's southern. It's south of that, but it's not tropical. Um, so just just nice. And it rained. It probably rained every day. You know, and they were they were and, and it's well known. For example, at this time period, Lake Chad, which is uh, um, w which would have been the eastern boundary of this plant I'm talking about, it was the biggest freshwater lake on the planet because of all the rain. And there's been hundreds if not thousands but at least hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rivers and river basins and all that stuff mapped back to this time period very well established green sahara 9600 bce good place to live so after the cataclysm mm -hmm. uh, of the younger dryas what happened uh i mean did the atlanteans scatter did they have did they have i mean they must have had dealings with the egyptians the egyptians 
wrote about them. Um, I mean, do we lose the trail? What happened to the Atlanteans? No. Is anyone picking No, we don't lose the trail. So there's something called the Sicilian Channel Monolith, which is a sunken monolith. It sits down. I think it sits at 40 meters, but it's on a big hill. It's south of Sicily and um, north and west of Malta. The, it, uh, it only could have been, it's a big monolith. It's underwater. Uh, and it only could have been put there when that land was above water. Well, that land was only above water during the last ice age or before. So we've got that lots of that stuff, but, but we do we do have a, a, a trace of, and then we've got cre- we've got cultural things we can look at. But I'm not an anthropologist. But in Herodotus, in the histories, uh, who wrote? So we have Solon, who's like 600 BCE. Herodotus is writing like 480 BCE, and Plato's writing like 360 BCE. But they all would have you know known each other going backwards, and there would have been a little bit of cultural um, overlap. But he actually mentions the Atlanteans. It never comes up. I, I don't know why it's not like on a billboard somewhere. He tells us. He says. And so what? What Herodotus is the first person who really tried to be a historian in the Western tradition. Mm-hmm. So he he sat down. He said, "You know what? I'm going to write down what's going on, but I'm but it's not Greek propaganda. He's he's trying to be to be, you know, neutral and just tell the story. Now he's a Greek, so there's he's going to have that worldview. But the first third of the book, he just kind of does a travel log. He says, "Here's everything we know about the world. Here's everyone in it, and here's where everything is." And then after that, he starts to um, uh, talk about the Persian Wars and you know give give us the histories. But pretty early on in that, he says he talks all about Egypt and everything. And then from Egypt, he says you, you travel west for ten days, and there's not much. And you travel ten more days, and you start to run in these to these people who call themselves the Atlanteans, and they and they stretch all the way on the coast from uh, a little bit west of Egypt all the way to the Atlas Mountains. And he says they're really weird people. He says they live on top of salt piles in these weird houses they built. They spend their days cursing the sun. They don't dream. They won't eat meat. And they, ref- they, they not only do they not have a writing system, they will prevent you from writing their names down. So he like couldn't report any of the names because whoever went there to look at them, they couldn't write it down. And they're called Atlanteans. And if you look at this plane I've been talking about and, and the culture in the Mediterranean pulling you that way and the idea of a tsunami coming in from the West, this is where you end up. It's where you go. Um, and of course, not every Atlantean was home when the tsunami hit, right? We're talking about, we believe it's, it's a, it's a, a, a trade culture. So there would have been in anywhere we can find is one of those provinces. They would have, there would have been Atlanteans there. Um, so the capital gets wiped out, but we can find the traces of them. Uh, and so between that and the story, and what's interesting is these people called the Atlanteans geographically end up really close to that West Nile Delta where, where the, um, uh, the, the cult of Neith showed up and then we're, where we start to get the Atlantean story from. So again, I'm, I'm a physical guy. You can look at the physical world. You can see how, how the story moved and we can find these pieces talking about, you know, the remnants of the society. Any, any theories as to why these weird uh, Atlanteans in Herodotus own words uh, curse the sun? I do. I do. So I, I, I have resisted um, picking a reason for the young, end of the younger Dryas. I, I, have, I, I don't have any idea what it could be. Um, it could have been an earthquake. And many people like comets or meteors or, uh, you know, something that caused the earth. Cause you know, the earth was tilted 23 and a half degrees. When did that happen? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, I've resisted all of that. Uh, it, it's clear there was a tsunami. Uh, I don't know what caused it. Was that your question? Uh, it was about the, why they cursed the sun. Oh, they, oh, sorry. They cursed. So many of those escalate. Let, let's say an asteroid hit the Earth and tilted it, and you know the Earth kind of shifted to the west, and all the water came back. 
Well, if you're sitting on the planet and you're looking up, the sky is doing all kinds of crazy things and the sun would move all around. So my theory is that it is a, a cultural memory because, you know, we, these are primitive people, not stupid people by any means, but they are primitive people. And if the day that it all blew up was the day the sun was going all over the place, then culturally they curse the sun. They blame the sun. It just, it all fits so wonderfully. <laughs> Well, and I'm calling this the grand unified theory of Atlantis. And I'm I'm doing, I'm talking to brilliant people like you because I'm trying to get the word out because it's completely solvable. If we can push away all the death rays and the nuclear submarines and everything we've heard and, and our own biases and just look at it, it's right there. It, it, it's, and, and so basically what it means, and I think it's important, is we can establish a location and a time mile marker where there was a seafaring, not not British sea vessels with cannons, but they were able to navigate um, the oceans. And we, we I forget the guy's name, but the boat Ratu, 1970, he, he made the reef uh, boat um, and sailed all over the place. Oh, the Contiki? Yeah, yeah, I'm getting ready to start. I, I haven't started researching that, but I'm aware of it. But it basically just said, yeah, what we see on Lake Titicaca, those reed boats, yeah, they could get anywhere <laughs> pretty easily, you know? Um, so it makes sense. And then, so there's the answer. So there was a society, something bad happened. They weren't magicians. Uh, it seemed, when you look at them, they had an exotic culture. Uh, they were very good at agriculture. It seems like they were more in tune with the earth side of things which a lot of us like they don't seem to have had computer it wasn't that kind of advance you know no. um yeah and and there they were and and when you do that and you pick and you and you lock in that date all the pyramids make sense peru makes sense everything makes sense it, it, and it all fits and for some reason when i say this i have some people that will scream and i had one guy call me yelled at me for like 10 minutes they, they I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm up against like a conspiracy. I don't think I am. I don't know what it is. People resistant to the obviousness of this. Right. Well, I, I guess Atlantis has its fanboys and that that uh, culture includes, you know, the nuclear submarines and the free energy and flying cars and you're you're bursting their well, bubble, I guess. Well, it's, it's that side. It's not just that side. The, the academic side is is vehemently out. Any, anyone, in fact, I mentioned the the uh, dean of philosophy at Yale. As soon as the administration discovered that I had had said the word Atlantis in my life, they jumped in and they cut off contact. And and I had a meeting scheduled. They canceled the administration. Not not the lady. The administration canceled the meeting. She won't return my emails. And that happened with her. That was Yale, Yale University. Wow. I had a I had a physical anthropologist lined up from King's College in London. Same thing. Uh, the the chemical geologist that I mentioned answered all my questions, was telling me all kinds of stuff that was just fantastic. And then I, I asked, well, do you think this could be like ancient, you know, Neolithic farming, which I guess clued them in and then boom, gone out, mm. you know? So it's like, it's, I don't know why, but it's, it, 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 I feel like everyone needs to know this. I think it's important. It aligns our entire past and it tells us a lot about the planet and it gives us a fresh lens to look at all of that, the ancient history we have that we've ignored. Uh, so amazing. But all right. Yeah. Um, how do we get a copy of Atlantis Solved? Uh, the publisher website is Frequency99.com. The nines are numbers, Frequency99.com. If you go there, there's paths to everywhere. All right. And the YouTube channel again? A History Of. Um, and so in the way YouTube works, I feel like an old guy explaining email to people because maybe everyone knows this, but you go to YouTube.com forward slash and you do the at sign like an email sign mm -hmm. and you just do A History Of all lowercase and it takes it to the channel. Fantastic. Well, case closed. Case, Case closed. Yeah. All right. Next, do Bigfoot. 
<laughs> Actually, you, you, uh, next I'm doing I'm doing the procession of the stars to see if the processions relate to cataclysms and if there's a cycle to this whole thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into that for real and, and solve it. Oh wow, can't wait for yeah. that, David. What a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much for this. All right, Richard. Uh, you know, uh, I I feel like I know you. I've listened to you for so many years. I'm a huge fan. So thank you for talking to oh, me. Oh well, now I'm a, a a huge fan of yours. I'm glad we met. Thank you so much. <laughs> A new Richard Serrett's A Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.